Welcome to Act Online, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In this episode, Nathan Mech, Program Outreach Project Manager here at the Acton Institute, sits down with Mustafa Akio, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, to discuss his new book, Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom, and Tolerance. In his book, Akiol dives deep into Islamic theology, shares lessons from his own life stories, and reveals how Muslims lost the universalism that made them a great civilization in their earlier centuries. Values often associated with Western thought, like freedom, reason, tolerance, and science, were historically part of Islamic philosophy, but in recent generations have been cast aside to reach political ends. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at actonorg slash Line. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Hello, my name is Nathan Meck, and I am the Program Outreach Project Manager at the Acton Institute. Today, we are joined by Mustafa Akiol, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute and Affiliate Scholar here at the Acton Institute. Mustafa is a Turkish journalist, speaker, and author who, in July, was named by Prospect Magazine one of the top 50 thinkers to rebuild the world. He has authored many books, including his most recent, Reopening Muslim Minds, a return to reason, freedom, and tolerance. Here at the Acton Institute, Mustafa leads our Islamic Outreach Project, which drives a conversation on Islam, liberty, and morality. It's been my honor to work with Mustafa on this project for the last four years and to call him my friend, and I'm delighted to speak with him today. Welcome, Mustafa. Thank you so much, Nathan. It's my honor and you know pleasure to have this conversation with you and on a platform of the Acton Institute, you know, with uh, with which I have a long history, and uh, I'm happy to be affiliated with. Uh, thank you, and uh, thanks for reading my book and for your kind words uh, about my work. So, yeah, let's get to it. So, I want to get into some of the themes from your book, but first, want to ask, how would you assess the current state of the Islamic world? Uh, what positive developments are you seeing, and what are some of the top challenges for Islam today? Uh, well, I mean, the Islamic world, or I would call the Muslim world, uh, Muslim majority world, is, of course, a very big and complicated place. And there's not one political system or not non, not one uh, social structure what one can speak about. Uh, I actually published a report uh, by the Cato Institute about a year ago titled Freedom in the Muslim World. And there I show that if you measure personal freedom, which was that study was about, and that would include freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of movement, uh, economic uh, property rights, economic liberties. If you measure all that, I mean, there's vast uh, diversity. Countries like Albania and Bosnia, Herzegovina, these are Muslim majority countries in uh, Southeast Europe. They're pretty free uh, compared to many European, West European countries. Um, whereas when you look into spots like Egypt, Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia, the trilogy generally that's the most troubling. You have very level lows of very low levels of f- religious freedom. In terms of religious freedom, Saudi Arabia is, uh, I think, undoubtedly the worst. Uh, 
uh, as as nothing outside of Islam, even a certain interpretation of Islam isn't allowed. Um, and of course, there are authoritarian regimes in, in the Muslim world which do not derive from certain interpretations of Islam. So there are secular authoritarianism problems as well. I mean, in Central Asia, for example, there are authoritarian regimes. Uh, in post-Soviet republics, they are authoritarian because they're post-Soviet, but still a little bit Soviet. So there is that sort of problem as well. And in the Arab world, if you look at Syria, the Ba'ath regime headed by the dictator Bashar al-Assad, I mean, that's an authoritarian regime and it's not, you can't blame any interpretation of Islam for that, quite the contrary, that is a relatively secular regime. Uh, but I'm more interested in uh, authoritarianism in the name of Islam. And that can happen through political repression. I mean, the Iranian regime is obviously oppressive and it justifies itself through a certain interpretation of Shiite Islam. And that also happens because of certain verdicts in uh, in fiqh, that's the traditional interpretation of the Sharia, Islamic law, with examples like ban on apostasy or blasphemy, coercion in religious practice, things like forcing women to wear the whale, uh, or you know flogging people because they did drink alcohol. Um, forcing people to obey the Ramadan laws, at least not, I mean, not, not publicly to eat. There is, this, there is a practice of using coercion in uh, either keeping people within the religion or keeping them pious or punishing heretical quote-unquote and, and blasphemous uh, talk. Now, I think these are problems. And I think... We had similar acts of coercion in other religious traditions as well. I mean, it was just a few centuries ago, you would see people being burnt at the stake uh, in the middle of Europe, right? In the name of Christianity. And uh, I think Christianity has gone through those issues to a great extent, at least in the West, both Protestants and Catholics. And uh, I think in the, in the Catholic church, it was, it was in the 20th century that came a full appreciation of religious liberty. And, and it's important that, that transformation in Christianity happened not because Christians turned secular in the sense that they didn't care about religion, but they began to look at their religious tradition from a new perspective while appreciating the seeds of liberty, which were already there, but emphasizing them and, and deciding that certain acts of coercion were not, was not the right thing in the first place. It was just how people understood things back then. No, I think we need a certain, we did a similar transformation, I think, in Islamic thought. Uh, to begin with, you can say, oh, Islam has already has some roots of freedom and tolerance. Uh, the fact that, you know, Christians and Jews were able to practice their religion in the history of Islam without being forced to, to convert. So there are already a lot of positive things to say about the, the classical Islamic tradition, even before, you know, we, we speak about reinterpreting it, reforming it. But there are also troubling issues. So I agree with uh, my friend, Daniel Philpot, who has written a good book, Islam and Religious Freedom. He says, Islam has seeds of freedom, but those seeds have not been fully matured into a fully fledged modern understanding of human rights. Um, on, the, on the issue of Islamic, Islam and economy, Islam certainly has a strong tradition of markets and property rights uh, and civil society, uh, the waqf, the foundation. So Actually, there, there, there are stronger grounds there, but still there are issues to be resolved, like issues of 
corporate identity, legal uh, identity of corporations, which has been resolved to some extent. It was more in the classical era. But things like uh, interest rates, I mean, are they uh, really a, the, the usury that the Quran condemns? So there are these religious issues. And what I do is to, I just, I'm just convinced by the broad range of scholars called Islamic modernists or or revival or reformists. Revival is a different term, but those who are Islamic scholars who are respectful to the tradition, who are who base themselves in the Quran and and taking inspiration from Prophet Muhammad's uh, example, that's the Sunnah, but also bring some new light into that understanding. Uh, and this has already happened in Islam. I mean, uh, slavery was a part of the Sharia until the 19th century, and it uh, uh, ultimately there emerged a almost universal, not universal, but almost universal consensus that while slavery was not something Islam really valued, it was just, it, it just Islam just found it in its own context and legislated it, but it, it took time to abolish it. So that kind of, I think, doctrinarian transformation is necessary. So my book is about these hot button issues, apostasy, blasphemy, and of course, these are troubling issues when it comes to uh, when they are in, implemented by the state. And in the most extreme, they can feel terrorism. Uh, I mean, to be frank, I mean, terrorists are very extreme people in the Muslim world, but they rely on certain interpretations of blasphemy or apostasy when they uh, attack Muslims or even, I mean, fellow Muslims who disagree with them or, uh, or non-Muslims in their limitations or, or, or jihad. So these issues needs to be sold out. So, and, I, and I'm not a religious authority, but I am actually referring to religious authorities or theologians, uh, experts, scholars, who have ideas that can help broaden the general public. So I'm trying to publicize their views and make them more coherent. So we have a broader discussion about these issues in the world of Islam. And in the meantime, the Westerners who are interested in this discussion can get a sense of what are the issues in Islam. And, and they can also compare it to some of the conversations they probably had in the history of Christianity on whether uh, people should be punished for heresy or apostasy or, uh, or some other kind of religious deviation. Yeah, so you make the case in your book that a lot of these discussions that are happening within the Muslim world um, that we've talked about hinge on an ancient debate over the role of reason and conscience in interpreting the Quran and the teachings of Muhammad. Um, can you explain what this debate is and why it's important to these issues today? Sure. I mean, these issues are issues of jurisprudence, that is, the interpretation of the Sharia. That's, so these are legal issues, very similar to Judaism in, in, in many ways, because I think Islam is fundamentally is religion that is more similar to Judaism than Christianity. I mean, I'm saying this for uh, for someone who looks at it from a Western comparative perspective. Uh, but deep down, beneath beneath jurisprudence and beneath the and the the limits of jurisprudence, I think there's some theology at work. Uh, what I highlight in my new book, Reopening Muslim Minds, is that Islam had a potential to develop a sense of natural law, as it is called in the Catholic tradition, which means that even if there is no religion, there is no revelation, humans have a natural tendency towards some moral uh, guidance and ethical compass. People can figure out that compassion, mercy, uh, justice, uh, security are good things, and there are things that are good and bad in themselves. 
So I, I show that Islam had this potential, but this potential was sidelined to some extent by the mainstream Sunni theology, that is Asharism, uh, because Ashari theology assumed that the Sharia not indicates, but constitutes right and wrong. In other words, uh, God's commandments are not educating us about some ethical right and wrong that is objectively out there in the world and which can be also discerned by non-Muslims, such as Greek philosophers, perhaps, uh, or, other, or other thinkers today. But those values are constituting it. So things are right and wrong simply because God said so. And in the book, I show how this sort of thinking blocks reinterpretation of the Sharia, because ultimately it, it disallows you from questioning the wisdom behind religious commandments. And it says, this is what it is. So it leads to literalism. And also it's this, this allows or at least discourages uh, connecting the values of Islam with the broader framework of humanity, like human rights, like uh, civil liberties. These ideas, uh, do we have them in the Islamic tradition? Are, are commandments of our Sharia somehow refer to them? Is there a parallel between them? Can we reconcile them, harmonize them? To be able to make that, you should have a certain framework which says, well, those values are something and they're the pro products of human conscience. Uh, but I think there's a theological limitation there. And I show how this was pushed to some extent by philosophers like Ibn Rushd, who spoke of something that we can call natural law. And uh, Sunni Islam has some elements that come close to this, but the lack of a sense of natural law leads to blind literalism, which is a part of the problem, which uh, doesn't allow us to make reinterpretations that can uh, bring ideas of Islam that value liberty. One of the ideas that really fascinated me in the book was the concept of Makasid, which is the goals or the intentions of the Sharia. And these you list are religion, life, intellect, lineage, and property. And that these are the goals of the law. And that many of the Quranic laws may be contextual, applying to specific times and situations, as opposed to applying to all situations in all places throughout all of history. Um, do I understand correctly that your argument is we should seek the goals or the the ends of the Sharia and the best means to reach those ends may differ depending on the time, place, and other circumstances? Uh, that is very correct. Uh, th these are the five famous, you know, known maqasid intentions of the Sharia as mapped by classical scholars beginning with Al-Ghazali, and then I think it's more mature interpretation was by Imam al-Shatibi, uh, who was a scholar in Muslim Spain. Uh, and it's interesting that this perspective didn't get much emphasized until the modern era, precisely because of the textualist and the uh, understanding of the Sharia, which paid little attention to these intentions. But the intention, Makassid approach, became more fashionable in the 20th century because Growingly, Muslims began to see the gap between the commandments of the Sharia and uh, its implications in their real life and, and the values that we would expect normally from uh, religion. And uh, I should say that one interesting detail that is little known is that uh, Ibn Ashur, who was a Tunisian scholar of the 20th century, he also added the sixth intention to these five, 
which was very important, which was hurria, which means freedom. And he extracted this from the views of some jurists who looked at certain injunctions in Islamic law about freeing the slaves. So there's an encouragement towards freeing the slaves in, in Islamic jurisprudence in certain levels, uh, in various levels, actually. So he, he, from this, some jurists have written that the lawgiver, as God, aspires for freedom. So freedom is what some, freedom, they mean the lack of slavery, but from this, Ibn Ashur uh, made a broader emphasis on freedom, including religious freedom. So this approach, this Makassidi approach, has become uh, interesting. That's why Muslims are discussing this all the time. There are panels on the Makassid issues. Uh, of course, the modern the modern emphasis on Makassid is a little bit different than the classical emphasis. The classical emphasis was that these are the uh, these are the commandments of the Sharia, and these are its intentions. God has these beautiful intentions. Uh, that's why we should keep these laws going, right? I mean, it was not an effort to reinterpret the law, but it was just an effort to emphasize the wisdom, the uh, wisdom behind it. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I, I understand it, but in the modern era, the thing is we are coming to, we're seeing a gap between the wisdom and the actual, actual literal Im implementation of the law. So can we take the wisdom, the hikmah behind the laws and take them as the binding uh, approach to therefore reformulate the laws? For example, in the book, I give an example uh, on how the Makassid approach can help Muslims to reframe things, but it doesn't because of there's you know, resistance to that. Uh, it was an example on women's, women's travel. Uh, there are certain uh, sayings of Prophet Muhammad advising against women traveling alone and that she should travel with a male guardian, a mahram. Uh, at least for a certain distance, uh, uh, she shouldn't go by, after a certain distance, she shouldn't go by herself. And of course, this is the basis of the famous laws or infamous laws in Saudi Arabia about women not being able to drive by themselves or travel by themselves. So the scholars who uphold these laws say, well, this is the injunction. This is the commandment of the prophet. We will do it. But a Makassid approach tells you, well, the prophet said so, but let's look into the context. When the prophet said this, it was very insecure for a woman to travel alone by herself uh, in the Arabian desert where there were bandits and uh, all kinds of uh, harmful people. So it was something to protect her from a danger, whereas in the modern world, travel is something much different. It's much safer in a safe car or a train or a plane. So we don't have to have the same thing. So safety, the Makassid should override the literal uh, commandment. Mm -hmm. So there are people who push for this interpretation, who make this interpretation. I agree with them. But I show in the book that there's a resistance because there's a refusal to reformulate the existing injunctions by looking at the intentions only. So that's that's why this is an interesting theological issue. And uh, I mean, I, I say that more about this in the book, but this is ba the basic uh, idea there. Yeah, yeah. This makes a lot of sense to me because uh, the world changes so much and circumstances differ so much from society to society that it, it does seem that the most just way to address certain issues will change over time. So while the goals of the law may remain the same, the exact laws, the exact ways of uh, reaching those goals will differ depending on the circumstances. Um, so one interesting data point on this, I think, is the Islamicity Index, which you refer to in your book, which ranks countries based on how well they reflect Islamic principles 
and it's very provocative, I thought. Um, the categories of their index are economy, legal and governance, human and political rights, and international relations. And the index measures countries in these categories uh, essentially based on how well they pursue the Makassid, the goals and the intentions of the Sharia. Um, I, I thought the results of the rankings were uh, very, very interesting and provocative. Um, can you tell us more about what this index is and what it found? Sure. I mean, the Islamist City Index is a work published every year, um, if I'm not wrong, by a few Muslim scholars who share this and emphasize this Makassidi approach to the intentional approach to the Sharia. And I mean, and, and that they take it to its heights and show how it can go uh, forward in the sense that they say, OK, what are the intentions of the Sharia protection of life, lineage, uh, security, other? And they, they just put more uh, details there. And they say, so let's look into the countries of the world. Which ones are better in protecting life, property, um, uh, and, and security, and, uh, and for example, overcoming corruption and things like that? And the countries that make uh, the top 50 in this Islamist city index almost never has any Muslim-majority country. So the top ones are generally Ireland, North, uh, sorry, Ireland, New Zealand, uh, Norway, Sweden, uh, Denmark, uh, Sweden does well, Canada, U.S. is doing relatively not bad. And uh, I mean, these are generally Western liberal democracies uh, where you have rule of law, where you have protection from government encroaching on your rights. Uh, and so this is to so these countries, these countries. So the most Islamic country becomes New New Zealand and not. not so, so, I mean, again, this is not an interpretation that will be accepted by an overwhelming, I think, majority of Muslims in the world today. But it shows what different does it make when you look at the literal implementation of the law versus the the realization of the intention that that law is supposed to serve and there is obviously a huge gap uh, and i think it's important to make that switch sometimes and think what the sharia is supposed to serve and and where is it being served in the modern world so i want to push back just a little bit on your thesis um that Rather than always taking a literal uh, interpretation of the Quran, we should sometimes uh, follow reason and conscience and use those to reinterpret certain passages. Um, we know that reason and conscience leads different people to different conclusions, and it leads different cultures and societies over time to different conclusions. And there's a lot of, of course, overlap in the moral consensus across societies and over time, but there have also been some changes in that moral consensus. Um, so if we are reinterpreting the Quran in light of our reason and conscience, uh, will Islam's moral precepts change as the world changes rather than standing firm against an ever-changing culture? Um, what guidelines or parameters um, can Islam provide us so that we are not simply going wherever the culture goes? That's a very good question, and I think it's a very valid question. Uh, here's a few. One thing, actually, most of the issues I'm discussing do not come from the Quran, but it comes from secondary sources of Islam. I mean, the hadiths uh, that are attributed to Prophet Muhammad, and of course, hadiths are important. And uh, but the hadith literature is so vast, and there is, I think, room to dis doubt the authenticity of hadiths that especially come with a certain 
single narrator they're called hot hadiths in islamic terminology like i mean the things like blasphemy or apostasy laws really do not come from the quran but these sayings and the way that they were interpreted by medieval jurists so so we're not only speaking about the quran here most of the time actually we're not speaking about the quran here but uh yes there are issues about the quran for example on women's rights uh, for example uh, i mean the typical example would be the quran gives in inheritance half of the share of the male to female. In other words, if, I, if, I, if I'm a father and I pass away and I have a son and a daughter, the son gets twice the share of the inheritance. So that's a Quranic injunction. Um, now, one way is to implement this as it is, which is the, the way, the standard way, and that's, that's actually the law in most Arab societies today. But the other way is to ask why God gave this commandment, right? Because there must be some conscientious to it, it must serve justice. And did this injunction serve justice? Certainly it did, I think, in 7th century Arabia, because at the time, giving half of the share to women was actually quite generous, because men were responsible from the uh, sustenance of any household. Women were not, you know, there were not single mothers or women who are kind of raising the bread for the family. It was a social structure that men were the breadwinners, and they were the ones who were the masters of the family. Giving women even half of the share was quite generous, and it was something that uplifted women. Um, but today, in a different social setting, where financial burden on men and women are the same, uh, it might not serve justice. So what, when, when I'm speaking of conscience and contextuality, can we make the switch saying that the, the, the intention of God was justice ultimately, and today justice is served by giving equal share for a woman? So this is the kind of thing I'm speaking about. Now, you can say, where does this end, right? I mean, is there no limit? So, And you're right. And, and I think it's, it would be naive to think that humans sit down and discover all the moral threats of the universe by themselves. And so then we, then what are we discussing, right? And they have a consensus on this. It doesn't, the world is not like that. And that's not what natural law suggests. And that's not what the unwritten law that Ibn Rushd is speaking about. What, what, what natural law or unwritten laws of humanity that Ibn Rushd, again, speaking about is that humans have a internal compass towards compassion, towards justice. So, how do you really realize that and turn that into concrete? What kind of uh, political systems you should build on that? What kind of laws you should on that is an endless struggle. And I think there is a very good chance that if you have only the only human reason and nothing else, you can actually do terrible things. I mean, we've seen that through communism and Nazism, right? I mean, there have been a lot of things done with a certain rationality. But the other alternative is that if you leave nothing to human minds and just follow a text, a religious text, then you turn into the problems that I'm speaking about. That is why I believe in both anchoring human reason and conscience in, in religious traditions, but also bringing into those religious traditions the balancing factor of universal reason and conscience, which is what I think has happened in Christianity. I mean, I think in the Catholic tradition. Uh, so I think the, the, the two wings, I mean, that uh, sometimes Catholic thinkers speak that there is reason and there is revelation and they both are ways to seek truth and you should use them so they will be balancing wrong interpretations of the other side. 
And I think in Islam, that one, one of those wings there in, in the Sunni tradition has not been uh, as strong as it should be. And that's why we are drawn into a textualism, which realizes the letter of the law, but because it doesn't consider and question the intentions and the consequences of that, uh, it's, it sacrifices the, the, I think, the hikmah, the wisdom behind the law. One of the really fascinating uh, Quran verses you quoted in the book was from Surah 5101. Uh, you who believe do not ask about matters which, if made known to you, might make things difficult for you. If you ask about them while the Quran is being revealed, they will be made known to you. And this verse implies that at least part of what ended up in the Quran was contingent upon what people were asking Muhammad at the time, yeah. which I think is um, very much in support of the view that you've been discussing. Thanks so much, Nathan. I mean, that verse is quite interesting. And uh, that verse, on the one hand, uh, I think, warns against a very obsessive legalism that asks every detail in everything, right? I mean, uh, which, which one can see, uh, you know, in textualist interpretations of, I think, Islam and even, I think, maybe Orthodox Judaism. I mean, you always ask the detail of the religious practice while forgetting the spirit of it. And I think you see that in, for example, while praying uh, five times a day, our daily salah, like, where should I put my fingers exactly? So that kind of, so the worst, on the one hand, I think seems to advise against such detail obsessed, I think, piety, whereas there should be a more spiritualist piety. On the other hand, as you said, the verse shows that there are issues in the Quran because people ask about it. <laughs> and if those people ask, there will be different things, which of course uh, is a uh, part of my argument that the Quran is, I believe as a Muslim is divine revelation, but it was divine revelation with a historical context. So if if uh, Arabs had different cultures and different customs, we would hear about them in the Quran, whereas we hear other things. We, we hear, for example, forbidden months in the Quran. And to what, today, probably nobody knows what forbidden months is, you know, in, in, in the world outside of the world of Islam. Even many Muslims wouldn't know. Well, it was these four months that Arabs said, you know, we will not fight each other. And this was a pre-Islamic custom. And the Quran has verses regulating this issue. Uh, there are there are patriarchal Arab cultures like zihar uh, or uh, certain things in, about marriage or divorce that the Quran criticizes or regulates, which to me, again, reminds that the Quran is divine revelation, but the revelation came to a context. And we should, while making this, while interpreting the Quran, we should not forget that the contextuality Otherwise, I mean, you can say these Arab customs are universal human customs. Since the Quran mentioned them, they should be with us always. Whereas you can, I think, uh, rather uh, moral lessons from them, uh, understanding that they are not, they're time bound. Right. So do you think if the Quran were revealed today, rather than in the seventh century, um, that first of all, different questions may be asked today that might be addressed in the Quran that weren't addressed and then maybe even some of the same questions that were asked in the seventh century might have slightly different answers on the basis of the changed world that we live in? Yes, I mean, if the Quran was revealed, uh, because I think the Quran is divine, it, it's it's the address of the divine to human beings. It, it's it's nuzul, that it, the Quran descended you know, from 
heaven. And it did not come as one book. It came as responses to the human reality. Uh, the Quran guides Prophet Muhammad. The Quran warns him. The Quran tells him to do this or to do that. And people come and ask Prophet Muhammad. And the Quran says, tell them to do, do this. Or if they, if they, the people blaspheme against Prophet Muhammad. And the Quran says, this is what you should tell them back. So, and of course, it, if it was a different society, uh, if, if it wasn't Arab society, but other society, if it was a different age, thing, the content would be different. The, the, the theology wouldn't be different. The eternal truths about God, heaven, afterlife, those things, that's deen, that wouldn't be different. But the sharia, that is the uh, legal aspect of the religion would be different because there would be different social needs and therefore different uh, divine responses to those needs. So I'm wondering if we can turn back to one of the contemporary challenges uh, in the Islamic world today. And, and you mentioned um, the issue of religious liberty. Then we know some Islamic states have strict laws against apostasy or blasphemy. Um, how can reason, conscience, and the Sharia guide us on this issue today? Well, I think a good uh, moral principle that we Muslims can follow while looking into these issues is the universal moral principle called the golden rule. Like do not do unto others, which you know you wouldn't like them to, to be done to you. Like on, on, for example, issue of apostasy, I tell, I mean, I had a conversation today actually with uh, two Muslim friends and scholars. I said like, imagine if Christians executed their apostates, some of which I converse to Islam what would we think about it, right? We will be probably quite unhappy with it if we would be probably even enraged because there are a lot of Christians in the world who become converts to Islam and we Muslims welcome them, say, Assalamu alaikum, dear brother, welcome to our Ummah and we're happy that you made your conversion. And some of them proudly speak about it and write books that finally I found the truth of Islam. And of course, the same thing happens on the other side. People, there are people who change their religious convictions. Now, if Christians are not threatening apostates from Christianity into Islam, I think we should do the same. We should not threaten apostates from Islam to Christianity. And on the issue of blasphemy, like, look, I'm not a, I'm not one of those kind of secular liberals who think there is some great wisdom in blasphemy and people should keep insulting. I mean, that's a very popular idea in France. You should make cartoons of Prophet Muhammad and other these people. I mean, I, I don't share that world of you. And I don't. I think the world will be a better place if we don't blaspheme against each other. I would not blaspheme the sacred values of any other religion or tradition uh, because I would respect them and I don't want to create tension and I would uh, be happier if they did so. But the world is a complicated place and people can sometimes say bad things about your, your religious tradition. Moreover, what you say as your genuine belief can sound blasphemous on the other side. I mean, some of the things the Quran says about polytheists, uh, mushrikun, will be quite offensive to, I don't know, some Vika or some pagan worshipers like that are out there or some other African religions or can find it offensive. The question is, what do we do against that? And again, uh, I think the right approach is well, we will not condone it. We will not be happy with it. We can boycott it. We can be critical of it, but we're not going to use violence to silence blasphemy. 
And on the issue of blasphemy, actually, it is easy to make that argument from an Islamic point of view, because there's no basis in the Quran for silencing blasphemy, let alone killing people for blasphemy. On the apostasy issue, too, these are not Quranic issues. These come from hadiths or other narrations, sirah, that's the biography of Prophet Muhammad, because Prophet Muhammad had certain wars with the Meccan pagans and, and, and the allies of those in the later phase of his prophetic mission. And during these wars, there were people killed, there were people executed. It was a bloody, violent era. And uh, some of, a few of those individuals who were executed by Muslims during the time of Prophet Muhammad were known to be poets who wrote satirical lines, not wrote, but recited. There was no writing much at the time, but recited satirical lines about the Prophet Muhammad. But in my book, I, I look carefully into those stories and I show something else. Those people were not just satirical poets. They were also agitators of war or they were physical aggressors on the Muslim community. So they were active enemies in a time of war. Whereas we have cases of Prophet Muhammad being ridiculed or he was made fun of. We have cases that he didn't do anything against those people. And there is a verse in the Quran, I think, which should be the guiding principles of us Muslims today. It says, if you hear God's verses being mocked by a group of people, do not sit with them. <laughs> It doesn't say go and kill them. It doesn't even say make sure that they shut up. It says do not sit with them, like do not be with the people who are disrespectful to your religion, which is I think the right thing to do. I wouldn't be with people who are disrespectful to my religion, uh, but that is different. And, and, and I believe that these blasphemy and apostasy laws emerged in Islam, early Islam, at a context where the Byzantine and Sasanid empires of the time had very similar laws. It was just the way people looked at religion and, and politics and, and power uh, in that day and age. Uh, so I think that's th th that cultural context. And, and of course, these were also used by autocratic states in the Muslim world to silence the sense too. So there's that element. So my argument overall is that we Muslims should uh, embrace the Quranic principle, la ikraha or no compulsion in religion, which means we shouldn't have blasphemy or apostasy laws and uh, we should present our religion with advice and civil means and exemplary means, but not any coercive, let alone violent measure. Um, I want to turn briefly to another contemporary issue in the Muslim world, and that's uh, women's rights. You mentioned earlier uh, the, some restrictions on women traveling, and there's also, uh, of course, been laws about women receiving half the inheritance of men. Um, how should reason, conscience, and the Sharia guide us today on this issue? Well, first of all, there's a huge lit lit literature on this, and I've touched upon it a little bit in my book, but there are uh, books by scholars like Asma Barlas, and some of them are female scholars, Muslim scholars, who actually, of course, understandably have a lot of uh, attention on this. There's this movement called Islamic feminism, Feminism in the sense of advocating equal rights for Muslim women. And I think they have a whole literature out there. Well, one thing those scholars emphasize is that, again, like most issues, there's a difference between the Quran and the post-Quranic jurisprudence. Uh, there are some statements in some hadiths and certainly writings of scholars that, you know, women were seen as inferior to men. There's no doubt about that. Women are defined as intellectually inferior to men in, in some of these texts. Again, it's not in the Quran, but post-Quranic texts. But the view there is that these were not really the principles of Islam or divine revelation. These were just how 
people thought at the time. I mean, these male scholars wrote these things or collected these hadiths. They sometimes projected their existing culture back to the Prophet Muhammad. It was just how society functioned at the time. And no wonder when you look at some Christian writers, uh, church fathers, I think in the classical era, you probably can find that, you know, they have views saying that, you know, women are not as intelligent as men. That was the work, that was a culture. I mean, the, the thing is, people who interpreted Islam in its formative period, we respect them. They were the greatest scholars. They were pious people, but they were people of their time. And in that time in the world, there was, uh, even in, you know, when you look at Aristotle's writings, there is a view that, you know, men are chosen to be the leaders and, and women are their, uh, I mean, women are second class, I mean, if you will, in, in many senses. Um, there are even, I mean, there's a passage that says uh, marriage is like slavery and uh, he didn't say as a criticism, like, and, and so woman is like a slave to the husband. I would see these as patriarchal norms of that time, which humanity has been able to question and I think overcome in the past few centuries. As new jobs came forward and people discovered that women are not any less smart than men and, you know, there are just maybe some physical differences. And I think the idea that women should have equal rights developed at time. Interestingly, Islamic law gave more rights to women compared to Christendom until the modern era. For example, in Islam, women had always property rights, which was not the case. Uh, actually, there are, there are cases of Muslim women losing their property rights in India when it was colonized by the British because the British brought their laws which didn't have the same uh, property rights that Islamic law had. So it's not that Islam has a troubling history when it comes to this issue. It's just the development in the past few centuries have not been caught up. And I think that will that issue has to be resolved by the methodological approaches that I'm speaking about. Primacy of the Quran, contextual reading of it, and understanding that the post-Quranic tradition especially includes a lot of cultural baggage and layer on top of it. This has been a really fascinating discussion. Um, you're a very passionate person, very hardworking person. And I'd like to end on a uh, more personal question that I often ask people, but I don't believe I've ever asked this to you. Uh, and that's what drives you? What, what do you see as your purpose in life? Or at least how would you articulate the purpose of your public intellectual work? Oh, that's a big question, Nathan. Um... I can say I became a born-again Muslim, you know, to use a Christian term, uh, at around the age of 17 and when at the end of high school. So I became intensely religious, uh, studied the Quran, you know, joined some Islamic communities in Turkey, then ultimately uh, broke off and uh, just followed my own way. And I always had the recognition that I'm devoted to God, I have loyalty to God and Islam, but I growingly saw a lot of problems a lot of ugly things done in the name of Islam. In my home country, Turkey, broader Arab world. And I've growingly realized the importance of liberty and the lack of liberty seemed to be the core of the issue. Uh, that is in terms of political liberties, in terms of authoritarian governments, in terms of illiberal interpretations of religion, the idea that your piety should make you subservient you know, to a political system uh, or a or an authority that you can't even question. And uh, and I I realized that, I mean, the more I learned, I, I realized that the Christians had these same issues. Actually, you know, there was more trouble, honestly, at some point in Christian history compared to ours. 
but that has hap- that has been resolved through through a liberalism, quote unquote, that is respectful to religion. I'm not a fan of the so-called liberalism in the Western tradition that actually defied religion to assert human liberty. That's very strong in France, especially the French Enlightenment. I've always stood away from that uh, because that's not what I believe in. But I, the more I read the uh, com, and actually knowing more about America helped me too, because I think there's a great emphasis on liberty among the religious thinkers and communities in America, and, and which, which is not the case probably in, in, in every other society. Uh, so all these made me convinced that there's something to do here. Uh, and one thing, I mean, Turkey has pretty good theologians who've been actually working on these issues, from whose works I learned a lot, I mean. But they're only writing in Turkish, and <laughs> few people know what they're thinking. So I kind of try to dig into academia and try to publicize it and bring perspectives, because I fear that if we don't figure out these issues, the 21st century will be yet another troubling century for the Islamic ummah. Uh, Islamic world. Uh, we will see a strident secularism a, uh, because of the oppression in the name of Islam and, I, and, and then the, the oppressive interpretations of Islam, there will be more clash. So I want to avoid that scenario and I want to, I want to help bring some ground in, in the Muslim world, at least for Muslims who are seeking answers to these questions. And, uh, and I'm not offering answers as an authority. I'm just I'm just highlighting the answers offered by people who are already authorities or who are the texts, I mean, the Quran itself, which are the texts, but that are not being maybe noticed enough or at least in the public square right now. At a time when, you know, on internet, there's all sorts of interpretations from the most radical ones to the most troubling ones. I try to add a new voice and facilitate discussion. And I also want Westerners to understand that Islam is not an alien religion, it's an Abrahamic faith. Uh, so some of the issues we have in Islam today uh, are very similar to other certain discussions in Christian history. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, this has been a great discussion. And uh, I encourage our listeners to check out your book, Reopening Muslim Minds, which is really excellent. Uh, I also encourage them to go online and vote for you on Prospect Magazine's The World's Top 50 Thinkers list. Well, only if they agree. <laughs> <laughs> if they agree, exactly. Hopefully you've persuaded them. Um, and, and where can people follow you uh, and learn more about your work? Uh, I mean, I'm on Twitter very active. I have the account Akyol in English and on Twitter. That's because I also have an Akyol Mustafa, which is in Turkish. That's probably not going to help you much. Uh, also, my web page at the Cato Institute website, uh, if you enter cato.org and type Mustafa Akyol, you'll come to my personal page, which includes all the recent writings, events uh, that you know I have on these issues and the links to my publications as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Mustafa. Thank you, Nathan. It was a pleasure. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Actonline, I'm Gabriel Zsazsa.